to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Fulick. Welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fulick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to resilience, business continuity, disaster planning, well-being, anything that helps you, your organization, or your community prepare for, respond to, and overcome adverse situations. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, please feel free. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm the only Alex Fulick there. I'm really easy to find, and I do respond to everything I get. As many of you know, I love to read. I read all the time uh, for entertainment and education purposes. And sometimes I come across a book where I want to reach out and get the author on the show to talk about their subject, because I think it's something that all of us can leverage and can learn from. So the book today we're going to talk about is Psychological Safety, The Key to Happy, High-Performing People in Teams, and I'd like to welcome to the show today one of the co-authors of the book, Dr. Dan Radecki. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here talking about this. Now, you and I have uh, spoken a few times. We we planned out what we're going to talk about today. So I know a little bit about you. Can you uh, take a minute or two and tell uh, you know our global viewers and listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, um, I am I'm a neuroscientist by training, and um, I worked in the uh, biotech, biopharmaceutical industry for about 25 years. And um, in that industry, as a neuroscientist, a behavioral neuroscientist, but also as a a leader in the corporate realm, uh, I saw the disconnect between how we grow leaders, how we build leadership capabilities, and what the brain actually is doing. You know, there's sort of this disconnect that we understand how the brain works, but we're not really putting that into practice when we develop leaders. We mm-hmm. expect leaders to be able to, you know, they, they're very technologically savvy. So we say, OK, you're a leader now, all right, because you have knowledge of science or whatever. Uh, and it's not necessarily the case. So I really was interested in this idea of building leadership based on what we know about neuroscience and how the brain operates. And so that's why I got into this field uh, and s- co-founded the Academy of Brain-Based Leadership with my partner, Lee Hall. Um, and we've been doing this for going on nine years now, and it's, it's been really rewarding. Well, and congratulations on the book. It It is a great read, lots of good information, and this is what we're going to focus on today. Great. So my first question for you is going to be an easy one. What does psychological safety mean? <laughs> yeah, that's... Uh... Well, it's me, me easy to ask. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, you know, it, it's become a very popular concept these days. Psychological safety as an idea has been around for 60, 70 years. Um, oh. But just since Google did some research a few years ago on it um, and applied it to Google, uh, people started t- paying attention to it. Really, to take a step back, if you think of what physical safety is, right, it's we know what that is. We have all these standards in place, OSHA rules, all these things to make sure we are physically safe. Maslow's hierarchy of needs has mm-hmm. 
food, water, shelter, all these physical things in place. Um, a few years, a couple decades ago, we started thinking about what about our psychological needs? What about our emotional needs? These seem to be important too. And what we're finding is that psychological safety, you know, as opposed to physical safety, is is also a critical piece of us as humans being able to get the most out of our brain. Um, whether that's being creative, decision making, collaborating, psychological safety seems to be a key piece of this. And so to me, what it means is that ability to allow yourself um, to understand what's driving your triggers for stress, okay, your stress response, um, understanding that based on the fact that our brain has these stress triggers, what that means for how you behave, how you come off to other people. Um, and, and at the end of the day, psychological safety is about feel, being able to feel vulnerable and to be yourself with individuals, with teams, within an organization, and not feeling like it's going to be held against you. Say, if you question someone's mistakes or or if you um, try to put a new spin on things that uh, has been the status quo. So it really that, is, is that a kind of like vulnerability. You, you just said something that I thought was really grabbed my attention, being vulnerable and not feeling weak in front of yeah. people. Yeah, yeah, being yes, that's exactly what it is. It's it's allowing yourself to feel vulnerable um, and not feeling like that's going to be held against you um, and that it's OK to be vulnerable. In fact, some of the research that's been done, Amy Edmondson, who's sort of one of the pioneers in this field of psychological safety, that's exactly how she put it. She said leaders should feel in a psychologically safe team like they can admit to mistakes. They can show vulnerability and mm -hmm. they feel OK about it. They don't feel like, you know, we have this old notion of what leadership is, that you have to have the stiff upper lip and pretend like mm -hmm. you have all the answers. Well, that just doesn't work. And that's not how our brain is wired. Yeah, that old Victorian way exactly you know, that, yeah. you're a leader so that means you have all the answers <laughs> but that's not true it's no and it's not something that's sustainable to even pretend and we what we see now in this field of burnout and the brain is that's what happens when you suppress all of this and and you put up this great front um it's going to come out somehow and usually the way it comes out is in the form of burnout an emotional you know, burnout or or just not being able to manage things, stress, anxiety, that type of thing. Yeah, which ends leads to to other things. You know, your 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 health, and and I know we're going to touch on some of these things oh, yeah. down the road too. But then your health starts to suffer, and you know the those around you start suffering as well. Of course. Now you also go on in in the beginning of the book. You you introduce a co-pilot but with the acronym of uh, RFC. Well, the PFC. Oh, did I say it right? Yeah, sorry. PFC. I'm sorry. I'm reading my own notes wrong. <laughs> but what, what did you mean by that, having a co-pilot? So the way the brain is wired through evolution, it's really focused on safety, okay, so that we feel a sense of safety in our environment. If you think about it, it makes sense. We need it to feel like um, uh, things were okay, uh, what was in our environment was what was known, expected. So our brain is wired to be really good at looking for and maintaining safety. So it's focused on threat. Okay, our brain, first and foremost, the way it's wired, it's focused on threat. Mm -hmm. um, and that is a big part of our brain. We call it the lower brain. Okay, it's sort of the brain that we share in common with a lot of species. 
all a dog. If you have a dog and the dog sees a stranger, it's going to bark. It's going to attack maybe, right? Because that stranger could represent a threat. It's an unknown. We as humans, if you get in an elevator, Alex, and you see someone who's you don't know, you're probably not going to bark at him and attack him, right? You're probably going to say, oh, hi, my name's Alex. You're going to have pleasantries. That is a part of our brain that's somewhat unique to humans that allows us to override that threat brain. And that's called the PFC, the prefrontal cortex, okay? And our goal uh, when we try to teach people about the neuroscience of leadership and psychological safety is to really operate more with that PFC, that uniquely human brain, that brain that allows us to do things like take someone else's perspective, even if we don't agree with it, or empathize with someone who's in pain, even though we're not going through it, right? These mm -hmm. are things that are really high level, but they require that PFC to be fully engaged. And that's not always easy to do because when you're under stress, that PFC, it goes offline and we sort of revert to that dog with a stranger. You, you, Give an interesting example there about being in an elevator and, you know, you might turn around and introduce yourself. Um, what does it mean if you get in an elevator, there's someone you don't know, and instead of introducing yourself or saying, hey, and I'm sure you've seen this, the two people move off to the side. <laughs> yes. What does that mean? That's That's the natural reaction we have in our brains for there's this thing called in-group, out-group. And it's the way our brain is organized. And again, everything goes back to our brain wants us to feel safe. It, it's looking mm. for threat. It's monitoring for threat. And when you get near someone who you don't know, who isn't familiar or similar to you, many times you will <clears throat> try to keep a distance. We can say social distance now because we know what that means. But you try to keep this safe distance. And a lot of times you won't interact. You won't make eye contact because through evolution, eye contact can be a sign of aggression. Right. Mm -hmm. So we tend to look down or now we have phones we can pretend we're looking at. Um, but that is just a natural reaction in the brain. And that's a nice illustration of this idea of in-group, out-group. The, the way our brain is wired, um, you know, we'll talk about that later, uh, biases. But basically, the brain's wired to treat someone who's different from you as either part of your in-group, a friend, or an out-group, a potential foe, simply based on whether or not I know them and if they're likable to me. So that person in the elevator, you may not know them. They may not be likable. They may be a threat. All this is going on, by the way, beneath your level of consciousness. You're not thinking about it. You're just acting. So what am I going to do? I'm going to give them space, and I'm not going to look at them. And that's a lot of times what we do. Hmm, interesting. It, it Just as that example that you gave, <laughs> it's like, wow, you know, half the time I get in the elevator, and if someone's in the middle, instantly they're on one side, and I get on right uh -huh. to the other. You know, yeah. without even thinking about it, you just, you separate. But if it was a friend, you probably wouldn't do that. Yeah, if it's not a friend, it's, you know, you sometimes you don't even turn around. You're still facing them. It's like, hey, how's it uh -huh. going? You know. <laughs> yeah. Not a threat because you know them. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> you you mentioned a, a, a an interesting word there, biases. Yeah. Let's talk yeah. about that because you bring that up uh, a few times in the book about biases. So why should yeah. we uh, pay attention to those? Well, bias, first of all, biases get a bad name, right? If I'm just taking a neuroscience perspective, all biases are is a mental shortcut, all right? They're, they're wired into our brain for a reason. Nothing that happens with our brain and even our bodies does so by accident. So biases are a, a way to conserve energy in your brain. Like, I'll give you an example. If you've, I live in Southern California and traffic here is brutal. 
<laughs> so I can get in my car and I've been driving my same route to work for 18 years. I can get in my car and I can be at work in 40 minutes. And I, I tell you, I couldn't remember a single thing. I couldn't tell you anything I saw along the way. I just go on autopilot. Okay. That's because I've ingrained that route to work as a habit, right? It's ingrained in my brain. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to ruminate, consider it, anything. I can just get in the car and go. And for better or worse, it works, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the way the brain is wired. It's wired to automate things to make it easier for you. Because that PFC that I talked about, we don't want to have to use that too much. It's very resource intensive. It takes a lot of energy. It wears out easily. So I can just use habits and use the other parts of my brain and not have to think about it. And so that's really what biases are. Biases are path of least resistance for the brain, making a decision or a behavior based on the path of least resistance. And, and here's another example. Um, the, when we hear biases, I'll, I'll use the one that people typically use, um, profiling in terms of gender, race, ethnicity, something like mm -hmm. that. If I see, if I grow up, I'm gonna, I'll use an example that... Um, some neuropsych research is looking at. If I grow up as a child and I'm not exposed to, let's say I grow up in America and in rural America, and I'm not exposed to, I don't travel a lot. I'm not exposed to anyone from mainland China. I know I never see them. I don't see representations of them in my world. I see them on TV and on TV, they only serve a certain purpose. They're very stereotyped. I grow up my whole life thinking of the stereotype as a, as a mainland Chinese person in my head. When I encounter them, I'm going to have this bias that they need to fit into that stereotype. Why? Because that's what I've grown up with. That's what's been ingrained into my brain. I can mm -hmm. stop and consider the fact that, okay, this is my bias. This is how I saw it. But in reality, I know this is just that, a stereotype. That takes the PFC. That takes a lot of work. It's easier for us as humans just to default to those biases. And that's where we get into trouble, as we see in society, when we default to these biases. How do we even recognize we have a bias? Yeah. Because it, it happens in our uh, personal lives. Organizations talk about it. We see, well, we see it everywhere. So how do we yeah. even recognize in ourselves that we have them? Yeah, it's, um, and this is the hard part. It's the whole idea of metacognition, which is thinking about thinking. We're not very good at that. We don't do that. We like to behave, like I said, on autopilot. So it takes some effort, all right? It takes some effort. And we talk about self-awareness and reflection of what could be triggering your biases. And we have an entire model that we've developed, which is based on some of the neuroscience research around what do people need? to feel psychologically safe? What, what are, are there commonalities that all of our brains need to feel psychologically safe? And if we feel psychologically safe, then we're going to mitigate our stress and we're going to be more open to use that PFC. We won't be sort of a slave to our biases. So we have a model that we use, that we teach, that gives people a little insight about which one of these sort of variables are most important to their brain for triggering their biases. And with that self-awareness, then you can reflect on, okay, I need to be aware of the fact that, let's say my, my trigger, my bias is autonomy. I see the world through a lens of having to control everything. And if I don't, 
then I feel psychological distress and I have issues with that. So, so we use that safety model, as we call it, to be able to teach people about what their specific biases are. And we're going to talk about the security measure in just a minute because we're yeah. going to break that down. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned that that self-awareness, because I'm a strong believer, at least in the last year to year and a half now, in our industry, there's a lot of talk about resilience, operational resilience, organizational resilience, and looking at things like that. And I've started to come to the opinion that, you know, if you want to develop those kind of things, the hardest part is to start with yourself yeah. and create that self-awareness and really look at it. And you explained it well with, uh, you know, looking at our biases and things like that. Yeah, and the, the great thing about resilience, that's the word that's really been kicked around a lot these days. Yeah. Like you say, it does start with the individual. If you want to build resilience on a team, an organization, it really has to start with the individual. And resilience is, I'll take a neuro-geek approach with this. When you talk about resilience, we think it really is the ability to maximize that PFC. That's really what it comes down to. And you can see this. You can see it in the wiring of the brain, the plasticity the physiology of the brain, when you do things like mindfulness training, when you practice things like perspective taking, empathy, people who are emotionally intelligent, they seem to be able to access that PFC more often and longer than people who don't. Mm -hmm. The other end of the spectrum is people who are in total burnout and, and um, you know, uh, can't access that PFC their behaviors just being driven by that lower brain, that brain we have in common with all the other species, that's going to be very threat-based. It's going to be fight or flight. And very, everything's black and white. You're either friend or foe, you know, this type of thing. Is, is that some sort of ingrained fear? It is. It because, is. That's because the way because yeah. as, as you said, you know, it start, resilience starts with, you know, looking at yourself, but then the opposite spectrum, you know, those people, it sounds... Like they're afraid to admit they have faults or admit. Oh, of course. It's, it's not easy to do. So again, the other part of this is our brain is wired to really be averse to thinking we're wrong. Okay. We, we actually, we get, uh, when we feel we're right, we get a boost of the pleasure neurotransmitter dopamine. When we think we're wrong, or if someone tells us we're wrong, we get actually a pain response in our brain. So reflecting on your behavior, your biases, that implies that you've been wrong all along or that you've done something wrong. So it's not easy to do. It takes some time. It's not natural for us because the way our brain is wired. Um, but we see the benefits, not just in a leadership realm or on a team, but in your personal life. Because all this stuff is in our, it, it's, there's a mind-body connection here, and it affects your health as well as your emotions. Yeah. On that note, we've come to the end of our first segment. We are talking today with Dr. Dan Radecki, co-author of Psychological Safety, and we will be right back. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. 
Are you a business leader or executive that wants to achieve more? Not just in it for profit, but to do work you find meaningful that adds more value to more people in more ways. Listen for the Business Elevation Show with host Chris Cooper. You'll hear from successful achievers from around the world with the passion and experience to offer invaluable guidance. The Business Elevation Show can be heard live on Fridays at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, usually 4 p.m. U.K. on the Voice America Business Channel. Be more. Achieve more. Tune in each week for The Labenthal Report with hosts Dominic Tavella and Michael Hartzman. The Labenthal Report keeps you in tune with market conditions, investment opportunities, and outlooks based on the stories and headlines to keep you in touch with your financial success. Are you picking the right financial path? Find out by listening to The Labenthal Report live every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Klass. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullen. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back. Today, we are talking with Dr. Dan Radecki, one of the co-authors of Psychological Safety. Dan, great first segment. Lots of good information there. Um, you hinted at this in the, the first segment, and that is the safety model. And safety yeah. is an acronym for some things. Can you tell us what it stands for and all the different pieces? Yeah, yeah, sure. The safety model. Think of it as um, the low-hanging fruit in terms of what our brain needs to feel psychologically safe, okay? And so based on some of the neuroscience research over the years, these are sort of, it's not an exhaustive list, but it is a list of probably the most common needs that our brains have that are wired into our brains. And safety is an acronym. It stands for security, autonomy, fairness, esteem, and trust, okay? And these are these five variables that I mentioned that seem to be important from a neuroscience perspective of how, how we behave, how we make decisions based on our psychological stress, all right? And let me tell you what I mean by that. So for example, security, why is that important to our brains? I mentioned our brain is, is uh, always focused on threat, all right? And that's the way it's wired. Nothing can, our brain considers the fact that if, Something isn't certain or consistent. That's very threatening. If, if you're, if you have are used to a certain course during your day and it gets sabotaged and now you have to do something different or things are thrown into chaos, that's uncertainty and that's threatening for your brain because we don't know what that entails. Uh, change, change is something that's very threatening to our brain. You've probably, mm. uh, as I have as a leader, been through change management with your people, and it's very difficult. It's not because they want to give you a hard time. It's because probably 
our brains don't, at the very essence, the very core of our brains don't like change because it's the unknown, right? And it, it could be threatening. So that's security. Our brains all need security. Question is, how much does your brain need it? Is it more than the next one, autonomy or fairness? Okay. Autonomy is the next variable that we talk about. That's a need that's really critical for our brains to establish psychological safety, a feeling that we're in control, right? Um, autonomy is, is about that, control. And there's some really compelling research showing that if you are, if you don't feel you're in control of your life or your situation, you can not only have mental health issues, but physical issues as well. We are starting to see in the field of uh, psychiatry research, things like anxiety and depression are linked to people having the so-called victim mentality where they don't feel like they're in self, self-control, right? So that autonomy is important as well. Um, fairness, the F, we uh, obviously through evolution, we've been wired to ensure that we're treated equitably. And so fairness is actually wired into our brain, uh, surprisingly, and we share that other species actually have that need for fairness. In fact, when we're not treated fairly, an area of the brain fires that's dedicated to the emotion of disgust. Disgust is this real powerful uh, visceral emotion. And uh, we feel that sense of disgust when people don't treat us fairly. And so that's another uh, variable that's important for us as humans to our brains for psychological safety. And esteem is the E in the model. And that speaks to how we see ourselves, but how we also think others see us. So it's this perception of, do I have a good social standing? Um, That's important for our brains too. We used to think that's a nice to have. We're finding out that that need for esteem is wired into our brains. And if you don't have it, in fact, children who are raised with low self-esteem, they tend to have a poor time managing stress as adults. They tend to be more reactive to stress. Um, esteem comes with a bad rep too, though. Right? It does. It's, it's it, weird because it, it's an, oh, you've got great self-esteem. Oh, you must be a, you know, a snob or something like yes. that. You know. Yes. And when we talk about these, we always talk about it. We have this mantra: it's not you, it's your brain. Um, this is what your brain needs. Uh, esteem. Yes, it's you know people equate that with ego. Um, and being self-centered, and that's not the case at all. We have to, our brain is wired to be able to, we look, we want to have, be in good social standing with those around us. We want to have a good reputation. Um, and that's just something our brain needs. And when you don't have it, it's, it's going to revolt. It's going to be a stressor to you. And then the last one that we talk about is trust. Um, our brains have a need for trust when we deal with others. Uh, and when I say trust, I think of it in the neuroscience um, sort of perspective of the in-group versus out-group. Trust is about, can, do I see someone uh, or something that's different and can I still manage to deal with that person or that thing? So trust is really the brain's in-group versus out-group that I mentioned earlier. And how much do you need that? How much do you need that in-group affiliation or are you comfortable with some ambiguity in the people you're dealing with, the situations you're dealing with? Um, so that's the safety model. And what we do is we, we have an assessment that we use to quantify based on a 50, 50 question assessment, quantify which of these domains is most important to you on a scale of zero to hundred. And then we talk about this, we debrief it and say, okay, if, um, autonomy is most important to you and you feel that's the lens you see the world through, that's your bias. 
I need to be in control. And if I'm not in control, uh, I feel a lot of stress. I don't feel psychologically safe. How does that make me come off to other people? How do they see me? And then how can I step back? You know, you mentioned reflecting. How do we reflect on our, our behaviors and our actions? Reflect on that brain need for autonomy. And what is it? Is it serving me well? Is it causing issues? Um, so this is how we use the model in, in talking about biases and self-reflection. And I just want to uh, make sure we say it. The why in safety stands for you. <laughs> it stands for you and the why. And the why is really the diagnostic piece, um, you know, where it sort of can explain why. Let's say I'll give a good example. I had someone who took the assessment and they found that their highest need for psychological safety was autonomy. It was through the roof. And um, the why addresses the possible causes for that. And it's very useful because he said, look, I, I understand now that I have a high need for autonomy and my team sees me as a micromanager. But I'm not trying. It's not that I don't trust them. I'm not a micromanager. It's just that I grew up as the youngest of eight children and I never had a say in anything. So as I was growing up, I had this driving need for some type of control or say in my life. And so it's manifest as a leader of micromanaging. And he didn't realize that because it's part of his brain wiring. And when he did, things got a lot better. I, I'm curious with uh, with these, uh, it's what, one, two, three, four, five, six, six pieces of the safety model. Can they all exist at different levels or do they oh, all yeah. have to be even keeled to really make a difference? No, no, I think uh, we've done this now. We've given over 10,000 people have taken this assessment. So it's nice to look at the data. Um, they all exist. Look, our brain needs all of these to some extent. Um, and so what we do is we quantify which ones are the highest need, the lowest need, and then we, we talk about it that way. But they all exist to some extent. And look, the person I gave you an example of for high need autonomy he was having his autonomy need being met, so he was fine. However, he had a low need for security, but even with that low need, it still wasn't being met. He wasn't getting uh, the details that he needed, so he wasn't feeling psychologically safe. So it's pretty complex. It's not just you need to have your highest one met. You need to have all of them met to some extent. It just helps to know what's driving you, what's the lens you see the world through the most. Uh, how like kind of how they all connect? Yes, and they definitely connect and they interact. Okay. On that note, we've come to the end of our second segment. We are talking today with Dr. Dan Redecki, co-author of Psychological Safety, and we will be right back. told me Voice America is on Twitter. Follow us at Voice America TRN. Do you need directions to solve financial future? If so, the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answers Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities 
securities and real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Challenges in the workplace and within teams are only increasing as companies struggle to transition to a post-COVID-19 remote work situation. These unstable times have stretched companies and their leaders beyond their capacity, and they do not know how to maintain a balance of authority, empathy, compassion, and assertiveness toward their coworkers, much less continue their own career trajectory. Leading with Intention with Monique Dagneau offers support, encouragement, and tools to help corporate leaders address their personal shortcomings and emerge from these unprecedented times as well-rounded, self-assured leaders. Leading with Intention, Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Tune in for And Security for All, hosted by Kim Hakem. Each week, we look into a different aspect of cybersecurity, which is important to know for anyone who is involved with the Internet daily, which is probably all of us. We take the technical jargon and make it easier to understand while helping you to identify weaknesses and issues in your own cybersecurity and fix them now. And Security for All is broadcast live every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time, on the Voice America Business Channel. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullick. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back. Today we are talking with Dr. Dan Radecki, co-author of Psychological Safety. Dan, lots of great information in uh, parts one and part two here. Uh, I've got a question to ask you. How do we build a resilient brain? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of information and disinformation around that. Um, we attack it from a couple, well, of course, at the Academy of Brain-Based Leadership, we ta- attack it from a brain-based perspective. Um, and there's there's a few ways that we use to approach this, a t- couple different models. Uh, And all of it really is, think about what I said earlier, that PFC that you mentioned, that prefrontal cortex. Building brain resilience is really about maximizing your chance of being able to use that PFC at any given time. If I'm in a confrontation, if I'm under stress, how can I utilize that PFC and not just simply go to that fight or flight? Okay, the, the the more I can use that and the longer I can use it, the better off I'll be. So... We've got a couple of ways we do this with the neuroscience research that's out there. One model that we have is called NETS, okay, N-E-T-S. And that is, we tend to think of it as sort of a long-term proactive approach to building brain resilience. It's almost like, you know, getting the um, the COVID vaccine and then boosters over time to prevent the effects of, of COVID. This is sort of a way that science Uh, putting together the scientific research of how you build up that prefrontal cortex to make it strong so that when you, when you are under stress and we're all going to be under stress, it's not a, it's not a strategy just to say avoid stress. When you you are under stress, you can manage it better. Okay. And that's probably some things that, that are intuitive, 
stands for nutrition, exercise, training, and sleep. And what we do is we dig into each of these domains and talking about from a brain perspective, why it's important. So nutrition, for example, you know, you've probably heard all about the ins and outs of the, the healthy diet. When nutrition, we focus on fasting, intermittent fasting, and the benefits that that holds for the brain and for the brain to literally clean itself out periodically. Um, and, and there's some pretty interesting research about that with intermittent fasting. And I think this is one of the reasons intermittent fasting is becoming popular. It's becoming mainstream. Um, exercise, we all know exercise, how, how beneficial it is for our cardiovascular system, but it actually has physical effects on the brain. Growth chemicals that are released with exercise that almost act as housekeepers in our brain, cleaning out all the excess junk that's there from all the activity that goes on every minute of every day. Um, so exercise is another one that's going to help maximize that prefrontal cortex, that PFC. Training, when I say training, I specifically mean mindfulness training. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of literature now around the benefits of mindfulness training. Societies have been doing it for thousands of years, and there's got to be a reason that it works. Um, we're starting to find out, we think, why it works in part, and that is because of the fact that it strengthens, it literally strengthens that PFC. It makes it more, it, it makes the, the networks, the wiring more resilient. Um, so you can see physical changes in that PFC with mindfulness training. So that's that's another thing that we talk about. And and the final one in that model is the yes, sleep. We uh, it's something we take for granted these days. The average American gets uh, a little less than seven hours. Um, but what we're finding the purpose of sleep is and dreaming is really for our brain uh, to sort of make sense of everything we went through during the day, and that's important. We know, I used to work in a sleep lab, we know that if you sleep deprive people for an extended period of time, they will start to have uh, hallucinations. They, they won't go into a full psychotic episode. Um, and then they'll just shut down. There's a reason you need sleep. And we think part of it is for that brain, that PVFC, to figure out the stuff that was important during the day. Do I need to remember this? Do I? Can I forget this? And, and that's critical. And if you don't get adequate sleep, you're going to, bog up that PFC so it's not functioning properly. I, I like the mindfulness part uh, that you talked Well, I liked all of it, sorry. But mindfulness uh, resonates um, because uh, I've said it before on the show, I'm a practicing Buddhist. So I have I do a lot of me uh, meditation when I'm on the train, going to work, uh, you know, and it actually does calm you down as well. You know, when you encounter instances that maybe you might otherwise fly off the handle, shall we say. It does help. It really does. Oh, and that's that's actually one of the benefits of it within the realm of resilience, Alex, is that there's been research, Buddhist monks, practicing Buddhist monks who have done mindfulness training for decades, actually shown that the, the wiring between that PFC and that lower brain, that emotional negative brain, that PFC acts as a break on that lower brain. It's much stronger in people, in these monks who practice mindfulness meditation as opposed to people who didn't. You can you can see physical changes in the brain with mindfulness training in that area. So it's, it's fascinating mm -hmm. area of research. Yeah, I, I've read some of it. it. For me, it's not the easiest thing to get through, but I have read some of it. <laughs> <laughs> now, you mentioned this actually in the beginning of the, the first segment where we, uh, you, you, only hinted at it, but you said triggers. 
Yeah. Managing our triggers. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah. Yeah. So when we talk about triggers in relation to, well, let's talk about it in relation to psychological safety. It's those events that challenge uh, the assumption of the world around us so that we can't make sense of it. And it's not what our brain wants in the moment. And that's where the safety model comes in. We see that those those acronyms in the safety model as our triggers. So if I have a high need for autonomy and it's not being met, if someone is pushing me down and not letting me have uh, control of the situation, that's going to be a trigger for me. And that's going to trigger my brain's stress response. And it's going to shut that PFC down and make me in fight or flight response. And so when we're tra- talking about resilience training, it is to manage those triggers. Now, train is actually one of your acronyms. So what does that stand for? Train. Train is another way. So NETS is sort of looking at building brain resilience in the long haul, proactively, right, with the, with those acronyms. Um, train is more about in the moment. Train is when you're confronted with a situation, how you can manage your emotions so you don't have that fight or flight response. Uh, and you can maximize the chance of using that PFC. And train are, are, is basically a process that we use to, to look at how to do that in the moment we train people on. Train stands for the T is trigger, okay? So the first thing, I'll, I'll give you an example of this. <laughs> you're, in a, you're in a Starbucks and you're late for dinner and you're waiting to pay and there's a long line of people, but in front of you, uh, the cashier is just making idle chat to people. All right, just delaying the whole process. You feel yourself getting frustrated, you're angry. Um, train is a way to manage that in the moment. So T, the trigger. What is it that's triggering me? I stop and reflect on this. Okay, I have a high need for autonomy. I know that's my trigger, right? My trigger is really being pushed now because this woman is taking control of the situation and she's gonna control my dinner tonight because I'm gonna be late. Okay, so I, I take a step back and reflect on that trigger. I can label that trigger. There's something called labeling, which just is naming the emotion, which helps your brain get out of that fight or flight mode and into more of a introspective mode. That's that's the um, trigger piece of it. And then the R is the reflection. Now that I can take a step back and I'm not in the, that emotional mood. And now the A in the model is a, a praise. I can reappraise the situation. So I can maybe look at the situation for what it is. Maybe this woman is not just trying to make idle chatter to make me late. Maybe this is the only time she has to talk to people in the day and she's lonely. Okay, this is this is helpful for her. This is appraisal. This is something that's very powerful for our brain. And the more you do it, the better you become at reappraising, right? And then the I in the moment is include. And that is now about that that brain that wants to have in-group versus out-group. I want to bring this person towards my in-group. If I do that, it diffuses the situation more. And so if I've managed my trigger, I've maybe labeled it, I've reappraised the situation, now I I can literally bring that person to my in-group, maybe try to find something in common with them, take their perspective. When I get to the front of the line, I can talk to them and see if I have something in common. Then once you can do all this, at the end, the end is neutral. Now you can engage in a neutral approach. Your emotions aren't running wild because you have these faulty thoughts about someone who's trying to hijack your day. You see it for what it is on neutral territory. Um, that that sort of is a, is a quick overview of the train, but we go into each one of those domains in detail to try to describe why it works and how it works and how to do it. 
I found your example really uh, interesting because I think so many people have experienced that. Yeah. And I've stood I've stood behind people in a in a line at Tim Hortons, uh, you know, a coffee shop. Tim Hortons, I love the Canadian. Uh, hey, there you go, <laughs> Timmy's. <laughs> and, and you know, people in front are saying, "I wish that cashier would hurry up. Why is she talking to everybody? Or why is he talking to everybody?" And then they get there themselves and do the same thing. They just complained about all the other customers yes. doing. Yeah. So it is about perspective. And I think, Alex, the nice thing about it, since we've been teaching this for years, is how people see this translates to their personal life and the ability to stop. And look, this is what I tell people. If the only thing you get out of anything that I teach you is to be able to challenge your own thinking, challenge your own assumptions about a, a situation like that, then that's a win. Because most of the people on this planet are walking around not thinking about their thinking. They just react. And if we could stop and reflect just for a second, it makes a huge difference. I mean, imagine a world where we were able to take someone else's perspective of, oh, I'm a Democrat. They're a Republican. OK, I understand what you're saying. I can appreciate your perspective as opposed to it's me versus you, because yeah. then you get when that happens, you get to the in group versus out group. And we're in that lower brain and we're that dog barking and fighting. That's what it comes down to. That, that seems to be one of the biggest uh, challenges in society in general, an us yes. versus them yes. mentality in, in almost everything these days. And and what we say, again, our, our mantra is it's not you, it's your brain. It's not them, it's their brain. We know this is the way the brain is wired. It's It wants to very neatly categorize people as an in-group or out-group. So that being the case, Let's work on being able to, to push people into our in-group more as opposed to the out-group. And, and I tell us that we have. One last thing to ask you and talk about is psychological safety seems to have a relation relationship to strong networks and resilience. And then you had a couple of uh, points about that too. Um, yes, yes. So... When you when we think about um, psychological safety and we we try to get people to understand what's driving their psychological safety, we do it in sort of a, a concentric circle fashion. So you had mentioned earlier that uh, you know resilience, resilience training, you can do a great job of it at an organizational level and a cultural level, but it really does come down to the individuals. You have to focus on the individuals first. So the way that we think about it is we train this. We train people to understand what's driving their psychological safety, to get to that point where they have that reflection, that aha moment of what it is that's important for their brain. And then with that in place, you can then focus on your relationships with others. You can focus on having a establishing a psychologically safe relationship with others. And then once you have that, you can then go out to having a psychologically safe team and then with that in place, with multiple teams, you can do it on a cultural level. I think the problem we've run into today with psych safety is people trying to start with the team. And you're missing the boat because you can work on psych safety in the team. And that's what a lot of the publications are. But it's always going to suffer if you're not focusing on the individual first. Why is that? Why can't you start at the team? Because, because and the reason I ask that is because there are so many organizations, uh, the leadership and people in different groups. We have to build stronger teams. 
the focus yeah. is so much on, on teams. Yeah. Why is it on teams? Yeah, and, and it's the, obviously the team is is composed and only as strong as its as its individual members. And I think what we've seen is that when you're focusing on the team, a lot of times the onus, the burden is put on the leader. Okay, so I'm the leader. I need to make sure this team has psychological safety. And so I need to, and, the, and then the, bur- the burden, the, the, the leader takes it over, and that's not sustainable from what we found. We found that, that it's not a total responsibility of the leader for team psychological safety. We have to take that upon ourselves as well. So the individuals, once, once the individuals understand what their drivers are, what their needs are, and they understand what the other team's needs are and what their drivers are, then that's when... And what I've seen, the magical stuff starts to happen where people start to feel like they can be vulnerable and they feel like they can empathize and, and take another person's perspective because they're seeing it for what it is. They're sharing with each other. Once, Unless you have that as the starting point, I think it's hard at a team level to really get to that point. And in the teams that we worked with, we've worked with many teams who have psychological safety. We work with many teams who don't. That's what we tend to see, that there's been there hasn't been a focus on the individuals in those teams that don't have it. And then if you don't focus on the individuals, people feel marginalized. They feel like they're not being heard. Mm -hmm. Um, And and it's just you need to establish like a language and a common understanding. And that starts with the individual. Does uh, it, it just popped into my mind? Does introvert or extrovert have anything to do with that? Oh, yeah, yeah, I think so. I think that comes into the why of all of this. Uh, Introverts versus extroverts. Um, We've done a lot of case studies or or workshops with teams. And uh, even though it's not, you know, I haven't analyzed it anecdotally, uh, I see a difference between the introverts and the extroverts in terms of how they approach this, what their needs are, but also their ability to be vulnerable. Um, and there's nothing more gratifying than to see someone who initially is introverted and cautious about sharing, feeling guarded, and then getting to a point where they feel comfortable and opening up. It's actually, they become very emotional. Mm-hmm. Well, we've only got a couple of minutes left, uh, about three minutes left. Do you have any final thoughts or ideas you'd like to share with us? Yes. I think generally speaking, um, what I've seen for leaders is if you can model vulnerability, I think that is probably one of the best starting points. That's the definition of psych safety in a team. And if you as a leader, if you're going to try something to be able to admit mistakes and actually ask for help, that's something that really goes a long way with people when you're trying to set this stage for people, other people being vulnerable too. So I think as a leader modeling that, it's important. As an individual with all of this, uh, particularly about building resilience, um, I, I think, as I said earlier, if you we can just focus on getting to a point where we can reflect about our thinking, not take everything for granted, and try to be conscious about what we're doing. And you know, you mentioned mindfulness, that's mindful. Being mindful of what you're doing can really go a long way to helping us use that prefrontal cortex and not just be a slave to that emotional brain, not be an autopilot. Any, we got a minute and a half left. Any idea what someone should do to get themselves started on this? 
Yeah, I, I, in case they are experiencing yes. you know, some of these neg- negativities, you know, what can they do right away to to, to make change? Yeah, I, I think um, the reason we set up the Academy of Brave-Based Leadership and what we have online is a free uh, assessment. You can take the assessment for free and get your highest domain. So you can take the assessment and look and see out of those S-A-F-E-T, which is my highest that right there is a great starting point because it gives you something to work with uh, in terms of self-reflection and maybe thinking about how you come off to other people, how you're seen in the world if you have this really high need for trust or for fairness. I recommend everyone do that. And, uh, you know, especially leaders, because you're the ones who want all these resilient teams. Well, start with yourself first. Yes. Uh, as Dan said. Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. I really enjoyed uh, all the ideas and the thoughts you had to share with us. And congratulations on the book, Psychological Safety. Thanks, Alex. Appreciate it. It's great. And we do have to uh, give a shout out to uh, Leonie Hull, the the other co-author here. We we can't let her. Can't let Leone go without being referenced here. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> Otherwise, I'm going to get an email. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dan, thank you very much. Congratulations on the book. It was a pleasure chatting with you, and I'm I'm happy to have you uh, to share your ideas with us today. Thanks, Alex. I appreciate it. It was fun. Great. Thank you. And everyone watching and listening, stay prepared, everybody. you for joining us for preparing for the unexpected please tune in for another edition featuring your host alex bullock next thursday at 10 a.m pacific time and 1 p.m eastern time on the voice america business channel we'll see you here next week